0: I love that line that says, his faithfulness will conquer death. His faithfulness will conquer death. And it just reminded this morning that death comes in a lot of different forms. For some people like we've already prayed for, f- physical death has wreaked havoc on their family dynamic. And the hope that we have in the message of Jesus Christ is that he says, if we believe in him, even though we die, yet shall we live. Some of us, uh, death isn't coming in a physical form, but it's threatening us in a spiritual or emotional or psychological forms through, through fear or anxiety or behavioral patterns that we can't seem to break ourselves out of. And I just want us to be reminded that Jesus comes to address and stop death in all of its many forms. And because he's faithful to us, we don't have to walk in fear. We can walk in hope that God is causing breakthrough now in ways that we cannot see, or that breakthrough is coming in God's perfect timing. So let's pray together, believing that God's faithfulness to us is a gift that we can both receive and celebrate. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are faithful. You're faithful to your name. You're thankful to your cause. You're faithful to your kingdom, and you're faithful to your people. And those of us who have found our hope and trust in you are a part of that group. And others of us today are still trying to decide whether or not we want to put our confidence in you. And I pray that you would draw our hearts close to yours this morning. But for those of us who are walking in the the shadow of death, be it physical, spiritual, or relational, God, I pray that you would breathe life, that the resurrection power of Jesus would be made real to us, and that we would not settle for despair but that we would choose to walk in the hope that is found in you and only you. We pray these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Today we're continuing our six-part series called Hive Mind about what, is, what does it mean to walk together as a group of people, as a family, as a church community, thinking the thoughts of God together. And we're kind of using this whole idea of what we can learn about how a beehive functions, how, how bees exercise collective thought, especially in their decision-making. And in order to get us kind of our bee fact of the day, we mobilized our field reporter, Nick Walters, who's also our middle school director, to visit a local beekeeper and get some answers to our questions. Here's what he discovered.
1: So, Don, you mentioned that a scout goes out, they come back, they do the little wiggle dance, and then what happens from there? Well, keep in mind that we have more than one scout going out. Some there, some there, some there, and some there. And each one has what she thinks is the ideal spot for the the bee colony to live. So she comes back and does the wiggle dance and convinces some others to follow her to go out and check it out with her. And they do that. And But then you realize there are different points of view then on which is the very best place. Okay. So they, they solve that, they resolve that by having more of the bees go in each direction to find out to see which one they really do like the best and which one is best suited for their purposes. Okay. And they, it's a kind of a cooperative effort, even accommodating the different points of view. And when they decide as a group, the whole group goes. So it's a group decision. It's a group decision. And they yeah. all have to decide or they're not gonna go? That's correct. Uh, The group decides, the whole group goes, and with a matter of a couple of minutes, the whole swarm, which might be uh, 10,000 bees, disappears and moves into the new spot. Hollow tree, the eve of a house, whatever it happens to be, the whole group goes. Okay. Wow.
0: So when it comes to making a group decision, honeybees are surprisingly flexible. In his article, The Secret Life of Bees, Carl Zimmer says, Once a scout bee, that you just heard Don talk about, finds a potential new hive site, she travels back and forth from site to hive. Each time she returns, she dances to win over the other scouts. But the number of dance repetitions declines until she stops dancing altogether. Now, Dr. Seely, a biologist at Cornell University, and his colleagues found that honeybees visit good sites, and they keep dancing for more trips than honeybees from mediocre sites. This decaying dance allows a swarm to avoid getting stuck in a bad decision. Even when a mediocre site has attracted a lot of scouts, a single scout returning from a better one can cause the entire hive to change its collective mind. It's beautiful when you see how well it works, Seeley said. Things don't bog down when individuals get too stubborn. In fact, they're all pretty modest. They say, well, I found something and I think it's interesting. I don't know if it's the best, but I'll report what I found and let the best site win. Consider that for a moment. One persistent and confident bee can sway an entire hive towards a better future. But it's only possible when the other scouts hold their opinions with open hands. Have you ever had to try to make a group decision with a power broker who is incredibly stubborn and has already decided his or her mind before the meeting starts? That is awkward and maddening for everybody. Bees don't function that way. They're willing to acknowledge that there might be a better option out there than the one that they have proposed. The one thing that they agree on is that life in the hive isn't working anymore and it's time for the colony to move. Have you ever felt like your spiritual life isn't working the way that you're running it and it's time for a change? Maybe you could or can identify with the words of a guy by the name of Paul who was an early follower of Jesus Christ in the first century. He wrote this to a letter of, to a group of people who were trying to follow Jesus in ancient Rome. He said this, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I want to do what is right. But I see another law, another reality at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the power of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. It is exhausting to be so conflicted all the time. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. The Apostle Paul is trying to say that life without the Spirit or life lived independently of the Spirit of God, is like a treadmill. You're doing a lot of activity, but you're not making any progress. There's this intellectual desire to move, but a spiritual deficiency that inhibits progress. And it's marked by a cycle of striving, failure, guilt, and despair, which results in greater striving, repeated failure, increasing guilt, And deepening despair. It's no wonder that Paul describes this state as a wretched one. Now, Craig Keener, who is a scholar who wrote a book that we're loosely uh, using as a basis for the series, says many biblical scholars believe that this passage describes Paul's life before he became a follower of Jesus. He uses the first person here so that he can personally identify with his reader's experience. So they're saying Paul used to believe, live this way, but now that he's firmly anchored in the Spirit, he doesn't have this kind of back-and-forth, up-and-down, side-to-side way of viewing the world anymore. The good news is we get to choose our mindset. When we choose to follow Jesus Christ, we decide, the, we decide what lens we will use to frame our current reality. Do we want to live like we are a slave to Jesus and His way of thinking? Or do we want to keep thinking like we did before we had an encounter with Jesus? Romans chapter 7 describes a back-and-forth, flip-floppy kind of thinking. And James, who would have been a contemporary of Paul, calls this double-minded life spiritually counterproductive. This is what we hear in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. He's saying the mind of the Spirit wants to give you what you need to function in the circumstances you're in, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Double-minded living is counterproductive. In high school, I took a preparatory class to get ready for a college admissions test. And one of, the, one of the tools that they told us is they said, if you've got a multiple choice question and you're torn, if you're confused, if you're unsettled, the best, the best approach is to always go with your first answer. Always go with your first answer. You ever found yourself taking an exam and there are like a hundred questions and you get to question number four and you're like, I think it's A. Oh no, wait, it might be B. Oh no, there's a, there's a D option, which is all of the above. And then there's E, which is none of the above. And now, now you like kind of go into this death spiral of, of test confusion, right? And you go, I don't know what to do. And all the while, what's happening? Clock is ticking. And you're wasting precious moments that you could be using to answer the questions that you already know the answers to, but you don't know that you know the answers to them because you have allowed yourself to be in this default, destructive, double-minded loop on question number four. And many of us are using our spiritual lives and our spiritual minds in that manner, back and forth, up and down, twisting sideways. You can spend so much time waffling on one question that you'll lose all of this energy that you could be using in other places. And I believe that the scriptures remind us that we can choose to be single-minded and we can choose to stop second guessing. And we know this because the apostle Paul says so in Romans chapter eight. He says, those who live according to the flesh, my own base primal desires that lead me away from Jesus, that's my flesh. If I live that way, Then I live dictated by what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mindset on what the spirit desires. The mind governed governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Hear that again, we're gonna come back to it. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It is working against Him. It does not submit to God's law, nor is it even able to do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. You are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Full stop. Listen to what Paul says. He goes... If you are walking with the Spirit, you live in the realm of the Spirit, and you have the privilege of being governed by the Spirit. And you don't live in this this chaotic world where nothing is ever certain, and you don't know how you're supposed to act in any given moment. So let me ask this question. Why should we choose to walk with the Spirit? Why should we choose to pursue and receive the mind of the Spirit? Because the mind of the Spirit is life. The mind of the flesh is death. The mind of the Spirit is peace, but the mind of the flesh is conflict. The mind of the Spirit is pleasing to God and ultimately to us. The mind of the flesh is always stiff-arming the things of God. The mind of the Spirit is identity-affirming. The mind of the Spirit tells us what is true about God and what's true about us. The mind of the flesh is constantly plagued with self-doubt. Now, the New Testament scholar Craig Keener says, the one who trusts in Christ's work for being put right forensically should also trust in Christ's work for being put right behaviorally. So he's saying many of us, if we're followers of Jesus, we believe that on the cosmic spiritual plane, God has set us right with God. So we trust God for that, but we don't always trust God for the specific, which is God is gonna give you the wisdom, the grace, and the power to behave as as if what God has says about me is true. He goes, instead of merely trying to control their sinful impulses, though self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, believers may be conscious that Christ is living through them. Let me ask you this question. How many of you who are followers of Jesus Christ have paused for 30 seconds in the last week to acknowledge the fact that Christ is in fact living through you? Like, I'll be honest, I didn't think about it at all. I didn't give like a single pause at the end of the day to be able to say, did Jesus try to live through me today? And did Jesus succeed because I was cooperating with him or not? Many of us fail to take notice that the Spirit of God is actively alive and present and only needs to be acknowledged so that God can do what God desires to do in any given moment that we are living in. Remember, the goal of this series is for us to learn together how to exercise the mind of Christ in any given situation that we're in. The mind of the spirit aims to bring our behavior into alignment with our spiritual identity, why? Because personal identity informs personal activity. What I believe about myself tells me how I am going to act that day. If I believe I am an empowered and fully free daughter or son of God, I will exercise that identity when I face both challenges and temptations. In the spirit, I should be asking, Who does God say that I am before I ask, what does God want me to do? What I believe about myself will tell me how to act in any given moment. So yesterday I was taking my son to his um, football game. And again, Josiah is in the fourth grade. And if you're already tired of youth football illustrations, just hang on. There's only three more weeks left in the season. And I said, I was driving him to the game. I go, buddy, what's going to happen today? You you think you guys are going to win? He's like, no, we're going to lose. I'm like, this is not helpful self-talk. And I I go, well, you know, you can't control what happens on the scoreboard, but you can control how you function. I go, do do you think that you have a chance for success today? Are you going to come at a high level? And I did the one thing that every coach hates. I, like, tried to bait him into individual performance over, like, team solidarity. And I go, maybe you can score a touchdown. Do you believe that you can score a touchdown? He's like, ah, maybe. And then, sure enough, like, their other running back got knocked out of the game and Joe got his balls and his carries and his touchdown. I go, see? See how that works? Like, if you believe that you can perform at a high level as a fourth-grade athlete, in recreational football, then that is the person you will become. (laughs) And many of us, we walk through our days saying, you know what? Uh, You could flip a coin on whether or not I'm going to win spiritually today. Might be up, might be down, we might win, we might lose. I don't don't know. What does the truth of God say about who we are? It says that we are fully adopted, we are fully redeemed, and we are fully empowered to live a God-honoring life. Why would we settle for anything less than that? And if we roll out of bed saying like, well, I struggled with this sin yesterday and the day before that and for 30 years before that, and I'm probably going to struggle with it until I die, what do we have already done? We've given ourselves mental permission to do that again because we don't believe that Jesus can help us transcend whatever hurdle has been in front of us for however long it has been there. One of the best pieces of advice my father ever gave me is he goes, Steve, just because you fall down in the gutter doesn't mean you have to stay there. And I think that some of us say, well, because I have struggled with this sin indefinitely, this is my cross to bear, this is just the way that it's going to be until I die or Jesus comes back, so let's, let's just keep grinding. And that does not sound like the mind of the Spirit to me. That sounds like settling, that sounds like fatalism, it sounds like despair, and it sounds like death. But the mind of the Spirit is not death, the mind of the Spirit is, is life, and the mind of the Spirit is peace personal identity informs our personal activity. In the same way, our corporate identity informs our corporate activity. If we believe as a family, a a group, or a church that we have the mind of Christ and that we can live fully in accordance with the Spirit, our demeanor, that demeanor of confidence and power will drive confident and powerful decisions. Many years ago when I was in college, I had an opportunity to work at a Christian summer camp in southwestern Missouri. How many of you know that accents are contagious? Like I'm from suburban Chicago and three weeks into working in a summer camp with a bunch of boys from Oklahoma and Texas, I was fixing to do this and I was yelling to to do that and I was embarrassed. Like I came back home and my friends are like, who are you? I was like, it's not my fault, I came from the south. But we as a camp decided, like, there was this kind of culture that was, it wasn't in the camp code book but there was this culture of young men who were trying to follow Jesus together who says, you know what? Our group activity is going to be marked by honor and mutual respect and service to one another. And as a result, there will be no tolerance for gossip, for whining, for complaining, or for laziness. And the camp kind of evolved into this unofficial motto that if you did something that kind of transgressed the camp code... If you were disrespectful towards God or towards a camp or to another person, a guy would very gently utter three magical words that would immediately catch your attention that are theologically sound but grammatically incorrect. And those words were, That ain't love. <laughs> and so you'd be, you'd be going through your day and you'd complain about something, you'd mumble something under your breath, and, and a friend in, who had your best interest in mind would just tell, That's all it is, like, That ain't love. And you're like, You're right, it is not. I shall see such behavior immediately. It was kind of, it was just this, this very way that it's, we self policed one another. Why? Because our corporate identity, our collective understanding of ourselves, is that we wanted to be men who acted out of love for Jesus and love for one another. And if we strayed beyond the bounds, we wanted to know it so that we could fix it immediately and collectively remedy any beha- behavior that was taking us off of that path. And some of us, we're, just, we're so we're so nice. That we don't want to step on anybody's toes, or we're so fuzzy that we haven't codified what our kind of team rules are going to be. But if we're going to be a family that has the mind of Christ, what margin is there for nonsense? What room is there for gossip, or unresolved grudges, or slander, or complaining, or powering up? How much margin is there for that? There is zero. And so the gift that we give to one another is say, hey, guess what? That kind of behavior is not ultimately reflective of the mind of Christ. And as a result, I'm just gonna remind you that that ain't love. And what does it do? A rising spiritual tide lifts all boats. And when we have the mind of the spirit that is both life and peace, we as a community begin to display the kind of decisions that reflect and lead to life and peace. So last week, Craig was reminding us that we, together, have the mind of Christ. And today I want to remind you that there is a mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is not fractured. It is both singular and clear. And we have the responsibility and the adventure of discerning and exercising it together. So now a very fair question is how? How do I hold my opinions with open hands? How do I keep myself from stubbornly opposing my impersonal agenda on God and others? And I want to offer three prayers that I have found helpful in keeping an open mind so that I can receive whatever the mind of the Spirit is and exercise that mind under any given circumstance. The first prayer is this. It's the Serenity Prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. And if you've got any background with recovery or friends who are in recovery, then you've heard this before. If you haven't, It reads like this, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. Which in itself, like that phrase, is mind-altering because some of us have been told that we can change anything. We can't. So God, give me the serenity, give me the peace to accept the things that I cannot change. At the same time, God, will you give me the courage to change the things that I can? And will you give me the wisdom to know the difference? God, will you let me live one day at a time enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the path to peace, taking as you did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever and ever in the next. Amen. Some of my friends who I have seen display the most consistent spiritual maturity day over day, year over year, pray this prayer once, if not multiple times a day. It's something that tethers them to the truth and the heart of God. The very core of the serenity prayer is, I'm not in control And if you, up until that point in your life, you have been dictated by the mind of the flesh, your whole life is driven by your own agenda, the fact that you are not in control is terrifying, because you spent your whole life trying to orchestrate things that you can control. But when we live in the mind of the Spirit and God says you're not in control, you're like, oh, thanks for the reminder, because there's a lot less pressure when I don't have to control all of the things that I cannot control. And I go, God is sovereign in his dealings. My job is not to try to bend this day towards a particular outcome. My job is to find the pulse of the spirit and say, God, what does your heart beat for in this moment? And if my heart beats for anything else, will you bring it back into alignment with yours? Serenity prayer is one way, it's one means by which we can create space in our mind to say, God, I want to think the way that you think. I want to care about the things that you care about. Will you help me? Another prayer is called the prayer of indifference by spiritual formation author Ruth Haley Barton. She says most of us don't think of indifference as being positive. In fact, we tend to identify indifference as an attitude of apathy or not caring. Exactly the opposite of the passion and drive we would associate with good leadership. However, in the spiritual life, indifference can be a very positive term one that is rich with spiritual significance, it means I am indifferent to anything but God's will. Barton actually takes the prayer of Mary, who would be the mother of Jesus Christ, a line from one of her songs that says, God, let it be according to your will. Saying that Mary models this thing. God, I don't want anything that you don't want. And I want you to nurture my heart so that I only desire the things that you desire Barton continues, It is a state of wide openness to God in which we are free from undue attachments and have the capacity to relinquish whatever might keep us from choosing for God and for love in the world. It is a prayer in which we abandon ourselves to God. Now many of us, we want to abandon ourselves to God, but we don't take tangible steps to help us abandon ourselves to God. So uh, what we do is we take wishful thinking and we just kind of layer that on top of our predisposed feelings and agendas and hope that something will change. It will not. And I learned that firsthand this last week. Some of you know that I've undertaken a little bit of an experiment and I have made an entry into art prize. And my kids laughed when I told them that I was entering art prize because they said, you are not an artist. I go, I am. I have a badge that says so. I paid $50 for it. (laughs) And my experiment goes like this. I've spent probably the last two decades of my life preaching, and God has gently been reminding me that I haven't done a whole lot of listening. So the way that the experiment works is that I have built a wooden pew with the f- uh, help of my new friend, Bob Burkhorst, and I have built a matching pulpit. And so basically what happens is I sit in the pew uh, on the lawn of the YMCA in downtown Grand Rapids, and then anybody who wants to can come and speak to me for five minutes. And some of you say, that's not fair. You've been yapping at me for a whole year. I should get more than five minutes. Well, um, it's my project and I can do what I want. So... <laughs> But about a month ago, Brad Lamp was gracious enough to go down to the YMCA and help me take some photographs so that we could help people understand what it might look like. And while we were there, we met a guy who graciously agreed to be a stand-in model for us who was just on his way to to do his chest and arms workout at the Y, and his name was Brett. And I set up for the opening day of Prize this last Wednesday, and who should I encounter but Brett, who's walking into the gym. And he goes, do you remember me? I go, I remember your face, but I forgot your name. Help me out. And he told me his name. And I go, so how are things? What's going on? And he said this, he goes, today is 23 years sober for me. He goes, and it's my birthday. He goes, when I was 23 years old, I realized that my alcoholism had become completely unmanageable. And he goes, I made a decision to get clean." Now in my mind, I went immediately to, how can I leverage this cool moment for the thing that I'm doing over here? And so I said, hey Brett, when you're done with your workout, why don't you come back and stand in my little pulpit and tell me how much your sobriety means to me? Because in my mind, all I could think about was my agenda. What was it? That was the mind of the flesh. And so Brett did his workout, he came out, I was talking with a couple right here, the pulpit was right here, and Brett started pouring out his heart about how he has learned to do one day at a time and how he's learned to find a mission in life and that when he ends into a dark space, he realizes that there are other people who need his story and his help and he exercises his 12 step and goes back out in the world and finds people who are struggling. And I could find myself wanting to say like, just, just, just say it here and then it'll count for my thing. And I felt like God very gently say like, Steve, stand down. Just shut up for a second. What this guy is saying to these two other people, that is a holy moment, and that is sacred ground. And if you spend all of your time and energy trying to shoehorn him into some other experience that you want to create, you will wreck it. Stop. Stop doing that. And I realize that when we are in the mind of the flesh, we are constantly trying to orchestrate conversations and constantly trying to manipulate other people's postures toward our ends. It might not be inherently evil, but it is just natural. How do I get you to do what I want? But the mind of the Spirit says what? The mind of the Spirit says God is at work in every situation. God is leading a person in that situation, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. God is leading me in that situation, whether I am consciously aware of it or not. And if I find myself striving to try to get a particular response, the chances is that I am not operating out of life and peace. I'm operating out of fear and death. And God says, don't do that anymore. The prayer of indifference says, I don't want anything other than God's best in this moment. But the flesh says, I need it to end this way. And if it doesn't, then it's a failure and I'm unhappy. It's not a sustainable way to live. You want to exercise the mind of the Spirit? Then consider praying the prayer of serenity. Consider praying the prayer of indifference. Consider praying the prayer for unity. Bees make decisions together. We like to make decisions all on our own. One author, Joe Aldrich, says when God leads a a group of people to his will, he will lead them all to the same conclusion over time. He'll lead them all to the same conclusion over time. Now there are two words in that quote that madden me to no end, and they are this, over time. I don't know about you, but I like things to get done quickly. I get angry that my a microwave has more than one button on it. It should only be add 30 seconds. Like, if you can't cook it in 30 seconds, it's not worth your time. Like, I want, like, like, let's get this done. Let's get this figured out. And I think that many times families enter into conflict, marriages disintegrate, Christian businesses implode, and churches split. Why? Because people could not only fail to exercise humility, but they couldn't exercise patience. They couldn't exercise patience. And some of us, we're, we're, were running off of a clock that God has never dictated. Like, we, we flipped over the timer and God said, I didn't ask you to do that. I care more about who this community becomes than whether or not you were able to stay on your predetermined schedule. We have an example in the book of Acts 13 about how a community makes a critical decision in communion with Christ. Acts 13, verses 1-3 through 3 says, now... In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. When they were stuck, they asked God for an answer together. And they waited together until God gave them an answer that they could all hear together. And together they implemented that plan immediately. I don't know about you, many of the conflicts that I see in church circles, there's research and then there's debate. But Paul and Barnabas, they do what? They do prayer And then they do fasting. Like, full disclosure here, I would rather read an article than not eat. Like, prayer and fasting, that sounds like weird and ambiguous and like undetermined. But like, if I could read more articles than you, I could probably outsmart you and then I would win and then I would be happy. But we would have failed to receive the mind of Christ together. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. In what area of your life are you missing one or both? Like, I I don't mean to be overly simplistic here, but if the mind of the Spirit is not anxiety, and I am experiencing anxiety, then at some level I have failed to grasp the mind of Christ about whatever it is that is anxiety-inducing. So the team's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in just about five minutes of reflection. Just, I just want to buy you five minutes of stillness with God. And what I want you to do is, I want you to take an inventory of your current life and ask this one question: Where is the anxiety meter off the chart? In what area of my life is the anxiety meter pegging into the red zone? Is it in my marriage? Is it in my parenting? Is it a work conflict? Is it a struggle to discern whether I'm in the right work at all? Is there an illness in our family? Is there despair over my very will to live? Where? Where in your life do fear and death and uncertainty take terrain? Where have they taken up space in your brain or your heart or your schedule? Make no mistake, I'm not saying that God immediately evaporates all of our challenges. I believe that he does that. But I do believe that in the face of the most high stake challenges, the mind of the spirit for us remains life and peace. So if there's an area of your life where you're missing one or both of those, I just want you to say, God, I'm ready to tell the truth now. I don't have peace in this area of my life. And it's because I don't believe that you can or that you will Resolve it in a way that brings you glory and keeps my best interest in mind. So let's just take a few minutes of quiet together and say whatever it is that we need to say to God. And if we've been exercising the mind of flesh in a particular zone or a particular relationship, then it's a chance for us to name that and say, God, I've been operating outside of the zone that you have intended for me. Will you forgive me? Will you give me grace? And will you you please, please, please give me the clarity that I have lacked up until this moment. Let's go to God together in a spirit of humility and patience and prayer.